Thank you for joining us today for this service at First Baptist Church of Douglas, Georgia. Know that you can join us on campus every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. for small group Bible study and at 10.45 a.m. and 6 p.m. for our worship services. We offer ministries for preschool, children, and students. You can visit us online at fbcdouglas.com. Now join us in our services already underway. Beautiful, beautiful song. Well, would you take your Bibles now and have them handy as we will be looking at a number of passages this morning. We're in a series of messages entitled A Biblical Worldview, Knowing What to Believe in an Unbelieving World. Last week we started a sermon within this series entitled, Does God Really Exist? Before we begin part two of this message, I want to give you a brief review. Some of you were not here and some of you who were need to be reminded of these things before we delve into the second part of this sermon. First, we talked about the evidence of God's existence. We have internal evidence. That is, God has given to each of us a conscience. We know right from wrong because God's Word, His law, has been written in our hearts. So we have this sense of oughtness what ought to be and what ought not to be. And this conscience bears witness to us. That's why when we do something that is wrong, we have this sense of guilt that we feel. Or before we are about to do something that we shouldn't do, we, we have a hesitancy. The conscience that God has given to us is bearing witness of his word. Now, it is possible to sear the conscience if we proceed to do what we know we shouldn't do and we continue in that vein, then our conscience will become hardened, desensitized, or calloused, so we can no longer feel that sense of rightness or wrongness. So that is internal evidence that God exists in that he has given us his law in our hearts. Also, we talked about external evidence of God's existence. If you remember, we mentioned the creation, how the vastness of creation and its complexity shouts to us that there is a God. When you look at creation and its design and how that it is ordered, think about the structure to, to everything in Creation. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the largest uh, body, a heavenly body that God has created or the smallest atom. Everything has structure and order to it. Even a single-celled organism has structure to it because design is, is made within it by this great God that we serve. So creation itself bears witness that God exists. But the greatest testimony of all of God's existence is the external display of God himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in our Bibles how the prophets foretold of old how that Christ would come. Hundreds of prophecies were given in the Old Testament pointing to the Christ who would come. So that he could be identified 
we would know who he was when he arrived. And just as the prophecies told, Jesus came to this earth, he lived without sin. He died as a substitute on the cross for your sins and my sins, bearing our guilt on the cross. Then having died, they placed him in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, through the power of God, through the power of God's Spirit, Jesus Christ came out of the grave in victory. And not only that, for 40 days, Jesus appeared to people, his disciples and others. And on one occasion, as many as 500 people assembled together and they saw the resurrected Christ. This was the greatest testimony of all that God exists, that, that death itself could be conquered through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. However, despite all the evidence, some people choose to deny God's existence. And we talked about that last week. Now, the consequence of those who reject God and say, in spite of all the evidence, God does not exist is that they are given over. In Romans chapter 1, three times we read, and God gave them up. He gave them over. He gave them over, first of all, to their lusts. The, the lusts in their hearts became their God. He gave them over to degrading passions. The lust has become so extreme now, fornication adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia are all now commonplace in our culture. And even the most extreme deviant behaviors are becoming accepted and even preferred and celebrated in our culture. And this is an indication that society as a whole has rejected God and with that rejection of God who has rightly and clearly demonstrated his power and glory the result is a society that is not fit for man nor beast to live in again Romans chapter 1 clearly tells us of these consequences and it leads to a depraved mind. You probably have heard the term a reprobate mind. That means a mind that is void of judgment. A mind that can no longer distinguish between truth and error, right or wrong. And friends, this is where we are in our culture. Where people can no longer discern between right and wrong, truth and error. We even have people say that a man, a man can have a baby. Five years ago, to say that would have been laughable. And today people are, are saying, yeah, I'm talking about people who are in positions of authority. The, the, the leaders of the country are saying that a, a woman can become a man and a man can become a woman. It's bizarre behavior, but it's not bizarre when you consider the fact that people have become reprobates. Now, when we, when we hear people say this, we just can't imagine. What, what are they thinking? 
What would lead them to believe this? They believe these things because they have depraved minds. When you reject truth, you walk in error. When you turn from the light, you go into darkness. And that is a description of the society in which we live. So we talked about the evidence for God's existence and the denial of God's existence. But let's move in now to the second part of this sermon, and that is the necessity of God's existence. God created all things. We, we talked about that last time. But I do want to remind you of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a definitive statement. God is the creator of all things. But let's go a step further. Not only is God the creator of all things, but God is the sustainer of all creation. Creation could not function without God's guidance. God superintends his creation. Think about all of the structure, as I mentioned earlier, uh, how that there's great design and how there's great order to all the systems throughout the solar system and beyond. All of this cries out to us that God exists and someone has to sustain this creation. Now, God has certainly put natural laws in order, but he superintends those laws. I mean, for example, the law of gravity. I mean, you can deny the law of gravity, but if you will step off of a rooftop, you will come to see that it is a valid law. God established that law as he did other laws. But he oversees, he superintends his universe. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, of course, we have the Apostle Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. Uh, this is a church that uh, is being negatively influenced by false teachers, some of whom were saying that Christ is not God. So the Apostle Paul is led of the Spirit to write, to give a defense for the deity of Christ. It's a powerful book in the Bible. Uh, and he's speaking about the incomparable Christ here. And I begin to read in verse 15 of chapter 1. And he's talking concerning Christ. Keep this in mind. He is the image of the invisible God. That is, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to see God, look at Christ. He's the image. That is the exact representation of God himself. He's the exact representation of God because he's God incarnate in the flesh. The firstborn of all creation. You say, well, wait a minute. The firstborn, does this mean that Christ was born? The word firstborn there is the Greek word prototokos. And it can mean first in birth. But in many cases in the Bible, and this is one of them, it means preeminent or overall, or first in rank, or order. For example, the nation of Israel is called the firstborn among the nations. Now, it's not saying that 
uh, that the nation of Israel was the first nation to be created or first nation to come into existence is saying that it has rank or order over the other nations. And Christ is referred to as the firstborn from the dead. He was not the first one to be raised. There were others who were raised. He raised himself. As a matter of fact, three people, others two, but three that come to my mind. If you remember the little girl, Jairus' daughter. And then uh, a young man uh, from Nain whose mother was grievingly walking beside his uh, box, his casket, and Jesus stopped the funeral and raised him from the dead. And then an older man by the name of Lazarus, a friend of his, was raised. And so these resurrections from the dead were before the resurrection of Christ, but Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He's, he's been raised and he has rank or order over all other resurrections because he rose from the dead never to die again. So this, this word prototokos means that Christ is preeminent. He's over all things. And notice as we continue to read here in verse 16, for by him, that is by Christ, notice this, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. That is, he's not a created being. He's before all of creation. As a matter of fact, he created all things. And then look, if you would, uh, as we continue to read verse 16, last part. All things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17 now. He is before all things and in him all things what hold together I told you a moment ago that God sustains his creation he superintends his creation creation is held together by Christ think about this awesome being only a great intellect and a great power could do such a thing now, when we think about God, when we think about who he is, there are three things I want to mention to you that you need to keep in mind when you think about God. And in particular here, as we're talking about how that he holds the universe together. Three things, three theological terms. First of all, God is omnipresent. Omni means all. He's all present. In the book of Psalms, chapter 139 Verses 7 through 12, we read these words. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even 
The darkness is not dark to you. And the light is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are the same to you. This is speaking about the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere present. Think about this. If, if you were able to get into a spaceship and launch out into the depths of space, to the very outer regions that, that, we, can, that we can see, just to the, to the edge of the visible universe... Did you know you could whisper prayer and God would hear you? You wouldn't be alone. Because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. There is nowhere in his universe where he is not. There's not a blade of grass that waves in the summer breeze that God is not aware of its movement. He is but also God is omnipotent. That is all potent, all powerful. Revelation chapter 19 verse 6 says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and the sound like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, thee, Almighty reigns. Did you catch the word almighty? That is all powerful. I want you to know that the God we serve is omnipotent, all powerful. But there's a third thing I want to mention about him, and that is God is omniscient, all knowing. Psalm 145, verse 5 declares these words great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Now, our understanding is finite, it's limited. You could take a genius that we would all look up to and be in amazement of all that she would know. I figured you'd catch that, ladies. We would be amazed at what she would know. But her knowledge is limited. Very limited. There, there are some things she doesn't know. She didn't know how to clean a catfish. Now some do, but I'm talking about the genius. In other words, you're not a genius in every area. But God is. His ways are unlimited. There's nothing he doesn't know. But we ourselves are greatly limited. You may be an expert in your field, but there are things in your field you don't know. And there are certainly things outside of your field that you don't know, nor do I. So we're limited, we're finite, but God is infinite. So what we see here is that God sustains all things. He's the only one capable of doing it. Were it not for him, our solar system, our universe would not hold together. It would collapse. Life itself on this planet would not exist. Speaking about the necessity of God, William Lane Craig, who is, by the way, a philosopher and an apologist for the Christian faith, 
He made this statement, and I quote, If there is no God, then man and the universe are doomed like prisoners condemned to death. We await our unavoidable execution. There is no God, and there is no immortality. And what is the consequence of this? It means that life itself is absurd. It means that life we have is without ultimate significance, value, and purpose. And friend, that is true, and you know it's true. You may be sitting here and say, I don't believe in God. Well, then you have no purpose in life. There's no real value in life. Your life is absurd. It's meaningless. If there is no God, life has no meaning. How could we possibly ever find peace in this life if if we had for one single moment this idea that God does not exist? But God does exist. And that leads to acceptance of God's existence. How do we accept it? Well, first of all, the requirement of faith must be applied. Over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 11. Let's look at verse 6. Of course, this book is being written by the author of whom we do not know, but he's writing to the Jews, and these Jews are uh, believers. They have trusted Christ as their Savior, and they're being persecuted. Uh, They're being pressured to revert back to the old system, the old covenant. And here the author is saying that The new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Christ fulfilled the old covenant. And so he says here, notice in verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. What does he mean by this? Well, he's saying that that faith is required to have a relationship with God, but before you can express faith in God, you have to believe that He is. You have to believe that God exists. If you don't believe that God exists, then you have no faith. So you have to believe that God exists before you can express faith. And by the way, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And we've been talking about today and last week reasons why we believe that God exists. And so you've been informed by the word of God. Now it is your responsibility to express faith in the God that you know exists. Now what is the reward of faith? Well, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, look at verses 12 and 13. Here, by the way, you will recognize 1 Corinthians 13 as what we call the love chapter. And uh, you will hear this sometimes at weddings. The original context, however, is that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at 
uh, Corinth, which is a, an immature church. These are young believers. Uh, and uh, you know they're young believers as you read through the pages of First uh, and Second Corinthians because they were very problematic. Uh, and, and little babies, they create a lot of problems, don't they? Well, these new Christians were creating some problems. And one area of difficulty was spiritual gifts of all things. Uh, they were using the, these gifts for their own personal benefit, uh, to exalt themselves in the eyes of other people. And so uh, Paul, as he writes, inserts this love with the gift. We pray that you have been blessed by this message today. You can find out more information about this and other messages as well as our church at fbcdouglas.com. You may reach out to us online through our website or visit us in person at 124 North Gaskin Avenue, Douglas, Georgia. We at First Baptist Church of Douglas are striving to love God, love others, and make disciples. Until next time, God bless.